if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 12, please. Romans chapter 12. How is everybody doing? Everybody good? It's so good to see you all. I want to, uh, Joel is not here, I do not see him, but I want to give thanks to him for uh, preaching last week in my absence. I'm grateful for uh, leaders in this church who are willing and eager to step up and preach God's word, and I'm just grateful for that in our church. We're beginning a new series this week. I don't know how long it's going to be, so it just is what it is. I don't have a fancy name for it either. We're just going to we're just going to take a topic and we're going to walk through it for a while as we think about uh, the measures of our church, the measures of our church. I'll come back to that. But by way of introduction, I want you to think about your job. And I want you to think about your job description. Maybe you have an actual job description that was handed to you when you were hired. Maybe tell about the company. It may tell about specific uh, uh, expectations and responsibilities that you may have. And as you reflect on your job description, you may like your job description, you may not like your job description, but I want you to imagine what it would be like if you didn't have a job description. How you might go, well, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do. Maybe you got hired for a job and I've seen this happen before and it's even happened in my life and it's at moments here at New Hope where maybe we're hiring someone to to take on a new role or new responsibility and so we're still kind of figuring those responsibilities out. And so maybe when you first get hired, you don't have a real clear job description. It's kind of like, well, what do I do? How do I spend my time? How do I know that I'm doing and being faithful to what I was hired to do? Job descriptions are helpful and important, help people understand how they fit into a team. It helps people understand uh, ways to spend their time so they're not wasting time. Well, as a pastor, uh, my job is no different than yours. I have a job description given to me by New Hope Church, And I love that job description. I have no problems with that job description. But I say that as a way of illustrating this truth. The number one job description that I have as a pastor does not come from the board of this church. But it comes from God's word. Because just like you and your job, you have a boss that you want to be faithful to. You have a boss that you want to make sure that you're meeting responsibilities and expectations. And in one sense, I too have an earthly boss that is the board and the members of this church, but I have a greater boss. We all do. And specifically, my job is a job that is a calling that is given by God. And so he is my boss. And so as a pastor, my number one question as it relates to this topic is what is the job description that God has given me? And there's a couple of answers to that. One of those answers comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul, would writing to Timothy, says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, you are to what? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. One of my job descriptions, uh, if you will, as a pastor, is to faithfully teach God's word to us, to make sure that we are living by it. And at times that's encouraging, at times that's rebuke, but it's to faithfully teach God's word. Another example of my job description comes in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writing, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So Timothy emphasizes, Paul to Timothy, emphasizes my role as a teacher. Peter emphasizes part of my role of a shepherd within the congregation. So there's a couple of answers to this, but I want to highlight an answer that Paul gives in Philippians and Colossians. Read Philippians first. It's saying the same thing as Colossians of my job description. Philippians 1.9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and what, and so be pure and blameless before the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let me read Colossians and then I'll make it clear, if not already. Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. One of the job descriptions that has been given to me as your pastor is to lead through the forms of teaching, through shepherding, but it's to lead in such a way that we as a church might be pure and blameless and mature before Christ on the day of his coming. That is to say that part of my role is not just to faithfully preach the gospel so that the Spirit of God awakens our hearts unto salvation, that we get baptized and then we're in, if you will, and then that's it. But no, it is to continue to shepherd us and to teach us. And notice I say us because I'm a part of this. I'm not above, I'm with us in this journey. Is to move us toward maturity. This is why you hear me say verses like 2 Corinthians 3.18 a lot. That we all with unveiled faces, meaning as we are beholding God's glory, we are what? Transformed back into God's image, one degree of glory to another. There's a journey The fancy theological term is sanctification, where we are being made pure before God. And so part of my role is to lead us towards maturity in Christ, to push us to grow, to not stay where we are in various aspects of our calling, but in maturity to walk towards Christ. And so the question needs to be asked, how do we know that this is happening? How do I know that this is happening? If one of my primary job descriptions by God Almighty in which I will stand and give an account for is to lead the people that God has called me to shepherd towards purity, blameless, and ultimately maturity, how do I know that that is happening? Because if we're not measuring it, how do we know that we are getting close to it? Well, at New Hope, we have sought, not exhaustively, but I think sufficiently, to answer the question, what is a mature disciple? If my job is to lead us to maturity, then we kind of need to define what we think maturity is. And we've done that at New Hope, and we've called them our marks of maturity. If you're unaware and didn't know that, this is what these three banners represent on this side. And so I want to take us in the weeks to come through a series where we're going to talk through these three things. We measure and say that the, the life of a mature Christian is one that lives surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, 
talks about our relationship with God, lives surrendered, or excuse me, lives surrounded by a community of faith, speaks to our relationship with the church, and then lives sent to the world around us, speaks to our relationship to the world outside of the church, our relationship with God, our relationship with the church, and our relationship to the world around us. Again, not exhaustive to every theological truth in Scripture, but a sufficient way for us to look at how we are doing. Now, how do measures work? For us, are they like accomplished goals, like where we've done it and then we're good? No. Think of it like this. I have a doctor's appointment in a couple of weeks. I was recently visiting Nayari and Jonathan in the hospital. She had her twins, and we were just sitting there having a conversation, and she's a nurse, and I had happened to mention that I haven't been to the doctor in six years, and she about panicked. And she was like, what are you talking about? You haven't been a doctor in six years. Needless to say, I was logged in to my chart through my doctor's office and had an appointment before I left her hospital room. So I have a doctor's appointment. And here's what I'm telling you is going to happen. Yeah, I know it's good, right? Um, I'm going to get to the doctor and he's going to say, wow, you're tall. I know that. Wow. You know, everything's great. But your cholesterol is really bad. I know. <laughs> and we're going to have that whole conversation and for about two weeks, I won't touch pizza, and then I'll forget about it, and I'll just go back to it, you know? But he's going to tell me that, or she. I actually don't know if it's a he or she I'm going to visit, because I haven't been in so long. That old doctor's gone. I got a new one now. But the point is, is the doctor is going to measure my health against standards. And in some places, I might do well. Some places, I might do poorly. Then next year when I go back, not six years later, but next year when I go back, I might be bad in some of the areas that I was good and vice versa. You get the idea. It's just a measurement of health. Well, these are measurements of health where one day we might be doing well in one measure and poorly in another, and then sometime later we might switch. And so it's just a constant guide to help challenge us. Are we walking in the spirit in this area of our life towards maturity? And so today I want us to talk about what does it mean to live surrender to lordship of Jesus? All right. So with that series introduction, Now let's jump into Romans chapter 12. We're going to read one verse, verse 1. Romans 12, 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let me read it again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here's the main idea today. If you just want to write this down, we're going to drill this home. Worship Jesus through a surrendered life. This is what this verse is telling us. Worship Jesus through a surrendered life. Two questions we want to ask around that main idea. Why, firstly, do we worship Jesus through a surrendered life? And then what does it mean to worship Jesus through a surrendered life? First, let me answer the question, why? Why do we worship Jesus through a surrendered life? Why is Paul here in Romans chapter 12 telling us to worship Jesus through a surrendered life? Now, just as a quick aside, when I say worship, we often use colloquially in our culture the idea of song and this gathering as a worship service. And so if we're not careful, we might think that this is worship and nothing outside of these walls is worship, but only what happens inside these walls is worship. 
Now, we use worship in a number of ways, and that's a faithful way to describe what we do. But Romans 12 is not talking about what happens in four walls as the church gathers, although that is an aspect of worship. But he's referring to a life of worship. And he's saying that we worship Jesus with our lives by what? Living a life that is surrendered unto him. And let's ask the question, why? Why is this true and why do we do so? You may have heard this, hopefully so, but as we are reading scripture and you ever see the word therefore, you need to ask the question, what is there for therefore? And so when we see, I appeal to you therefore by the mercies of God, it's a good signal that he is relying on something that has gone before to be the foundation for what he is saying now. So he's telling us to worship Jesus with our lives and he gives And he says that is a therefore response. That is a response to something he's already said. Well, what has he already said? In in fact, in context, he's referring to Romans 1 through 11. So we're going to start in Romans 1, 1, and we're going to walk all the way through that, okay? Yeah, I heard someone make a noise. We're not going to do that, all right? Like, no, but we are going to summarize it. So I do encourage you to have your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to summarize the chapters in just a few minutes so we can see just the the flow of the argument so we can feel the weight of what Paul's saying in Romans 12, 1, when he says, based off everything I just told you, I want you to live a life surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. In Romans chapter 1 and 2, he's laying down an argument that Jews and Gentiles, which this, the church in Rome was a Jewish Gentile church that had come together, and there's some theology around that, because God's covenant in the Old Testament was primarily with the Jews. And in the New Testament, in Christ, the Gentiles, he'll use the language in Romans 1.11, that the Gentiles are grafted in, meaning they've been put into this covenant family. And so they didn't fully understand that. We understand that, but they didn't. And so he lays out an argument in Romans 1 and 2 that Jews and Gentiles are the same in sin. That the Gentiles and the Jews are both unrighteous before God in their sin because the Jews may have had an idea that we're not great before God, but at least we're better than the Gentiles. And so Romans 1 and 2, maybe an oversimplification, he's laying out that no, actually you're all equally unrighteous before God. And he summarizes his argument thus far in the book with Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all Jew and Gentile alike. But then he begins to make the transition in that very verse to then communicate, but also, verse Romans 3.24, and all are justified by his grace. So he's laying down an argument that both Jew and Gentile, so all people in the world, have fallen short of God's glory. And in the same way, all people in the world are saved by grace. And he begins to lay out that argument. He begins to talk about Abraham in Romans chapter 4. He too was saved by grace. That the salvation in the Old Testament and salvation in the New Testament are the same. Salvation comes through faith in God, faith in Christ. And so he begins to lay that out in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's laying out what is what we know as the gospel. That is through God's work that we are made righteous. And he does that in great detail. He talks about in Romans 6. Hey, if we are in Christ and you just laid out an argument that our sin was so great, which made God's grace so great, And if we want to magnify God's grace, does it make sense then to just keep getting bad and bad in sin so that his grace will get better and better? Which sometimes I think that's what 
Christians think. Well, God saved me so I can live however I want. And Paul goes, no, no, no. You can't do that. So he lays out his argument in Romans 6 that actually, if we understand God's grace and the magnitude of it, we'll walk away from our sin and pursue righteousness in Christ. And then in Romans 7, summarizing, he talks about, but that's difficult. And sometimes we don't always do that great. But then he talks about life in the Spirit in Romans 8, that we live out the Christian life and his, the beauty of that, because the Spirit of God lives in us and it prepares us for future glory. And we see in Romans 9, God's sovereignty, and in Romans 10, that salvation is for all. And then Romans 11, he talks about how Jew and Gentiles are together grafted in. So to summarize Romans 1 through 11 is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the payment that is in the blood of Jesus. That is the summary. Therefore, as we sit in the weight of that truth, The truth that you are unrighteous before God, but have been made righteous, not because of anything in your own power or strength, but because of God's grace and mercy, because of that which he has done for you. That is the reason why Paul says, because of that, now present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto him. I've recently have found that reading fiction books is therapeutic to me. Uh, I have to read a lot of nonfiction for school, and I enjoy a lot of nonfiction in my studies and sermon prepping, but I found fiction books to be better than movies. Um, They're more descriptive, and I do it on Audible, and so I don't actually read them. And so when I'm sitting on the subway, and like I can't always have a book open, and I can't be watching a movie necessarily, I can just have the book in, and I'm listening. So I listen to it on Audible when I'm walking, like even to church today this afternoon, had the book on, was listening to a book. Now, a little bit of confession. I don't like uh, the, the, the books that necessarily um, are always, you know, fiction books about Jesus. I don't know that there are many of them. Um, but I like the books like have like spies and like bombs, and they're like saving the day, nuclear bombs, and this guy comes in and saves the day. Um, and I find those intriguing. And one particular uh, book is the Gray Man series. Don't necessarily recommend it. Um, but I like it, and it's about this guy named Cortland Gentry. Gentry, he's, an, he's a moral assassin, if there is one. Uh, basically, he's a good guy assassin. Okay, um, again, not written by a Christian, but nonetheless. Now, I do it to explore the culture in our day. You know, it's part of, it's part of studies to understand how, right? And, uh, but there's a couple of the books. There's like 10 of them, 10 or 12 in the series, and there's a few of the books that are that are solely based off Cortland Gentry doing something very risky in order to return a favor for someone who saved his life in the past. Like the entire storyline is like, hey, you saved my life sometime in the past, I'll do this for you. And so he risks his life to help a friend that he owes his life to. And when I think about that, this is the kind of idea, I think a little bit that Paul's getting into in why we do what we do. It's this idea that Christ gave his life for you, and now he is asking you to give your life back unto him. When we think about what it means to be a Christian, it's not just an ascent of our mind. It's not just knowledge. I believe in the sense of, I, I think Jesus to be God, and I think that he saved me of my sins. But belief is all-encompassing of a life that is given over unto God. That because I believe this is true, that my right response to that is here's my life. 
that this idea that Jesus, you gave your life for me, what other response is there when we understand that truth, but to give our lives back unto him? This is what the why is. This is what's going on. So we worship Jesus. The answer to the why question is we worship Jesus through surrender because of God's saving grace through the work of Jesus. We worship Jesus through surrender because of God's saving grace through the work of Jesus. We worship Jesus through a surrendered life. Why? And now second question, what? When we understand the magnitude of what Christ has done for us, we surrender our lives unto him. That's the why. But what does it mean to worship Jesus through a surrendered life? I want us to look at this phrase, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which the verse ends with holy and acceptable, which is what? Your spiritual worship. Paul's defining worship, and he says that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I want to give an illustration, don't want it to be confusing, but have you ever uh, been so excited to give someone a present uh, that you couldn't wait till their birthday? And that's the confusing part. I'm illustrating the idea of present by using the word present, which is spelled the same way. Okay, maybe only confusing to me in my words, but have you ever wanted to present someone a present and you're so excited about it and so eager to do so that you couldn't wait till their birthday? I do this every year, anytime I buy Jenna a gift. Like, I'm just so proud of myself. You know, I'm just like, I'm such a good husband. I just can't wait to show her this, you know? Can't wait to, I'm just kidding, uh, sort of. And, and so I'll buy her something. I'll get excited about it. Usually she figures it out. That's honestly the reason why I give it to her early, because if not, she'll see our Amazon receipts or something like that. And, and so I'll, I'll give it to her early. But you, you know that feeling. Like, you're so excited because you love someone, and you're so excited that you want to get, the, that you've gotten them something that you just, you just want to give it to him. Well, this is the heartbeat of what it means to present our bodies. This is not begrudging. This is, wow, God, I see what you have done for me in your mercy. You willingly and eagerly gave your life for me. I am looking forward and excited to present my body as a living sacrifice. So we present what? We present our bodies. What does it mean to present your bodies? Like, I in case anybody's wondering, he, he's not being literal in the sense of like literally go lay your physical life on the altar in, in, in an unhealthy way to end your life. It's not what's being talked about here. But he's clearly talking about spiritual worship because that's how the verse ends. So your bodies, that's every part of you. It's not just your arm, not just your mind, not just your emotions. It, it's everything. It's your mind, it's your will, it's your emotions. It's your families, it's your careers, it's your aspirations and ambitions, it's your achievements, it's your money, it's your time, it's your home. There's, when you put your body on a physical altar, there's no part that's not on that altar. Every bit of it's on there, as if to say your entire life is on the altar. Everything. We present our entire lives. This is, this is a really hard truth. Because it's sometimes easy for us to present one aspect unto Christ. But some things are really hard. And this is where it gets to this last phrase. You present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What's the problem with living sacrifices? Is that they have the ability to get up off the altar. When the altar gets hot, you're like, ah, I don't know that I like this anymore. 
Uh, when I was growing up, I went to uh, Memphis Fire Museum. I don't know if they still have this part of the room anymore. I'm sure uh, maybe not for liability reasons. But I remember being a kid, and they put us in a room that was like a, a house on fire simulator. And it was video screens all around us, and it would show like we were inside a house, and a fire would start over in the corner. And as the video of the fire grew, like the heaters were on like full blast. And really was trying to mimic what it'd be like to be in a fire. And it was, you stayed as long as you could, and then you could run. There was the door. Like, it was, it was kind of a fun thing for the kids to kind of feel it and then see who could last the longest, and then we would run out. But there comes a point where we're all running out of that room because it's starting to get too hot. And so eventually everybody leaves. Well, when the pressures of life as a Christian come upon us, there are going to be moments where we're going to be tempted to run out of the room. There's going to be moments where we're going to be tempted to get up off the altar because living as a living sacrifice on the altar is when the pressures of the Christian life, when the pressures of living for Christ get hot around us, we might go, ah, this isn't what I signed up for. And we, we run out of the room and we get off the altar. That's what's so difficult about living as a living sacrifice on the altar is you have the ability to get up and get off. But this is what Christ has called us to that your act of worship unto the Lord is to live your life surrendered unto him. Living a surrendered life will bring difficulties in this world. We'll be tempted to get up and get off the altar. And when we think about this idea, I can't help but to think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who actually got in the fiery furnace because of Christ. Uh, Legend, and I say legend because it's not in Scripture, but we have... Uh, uh, written evidence from the church fathers soon after Christ that says that the apostle John was boiled uh, alive trying to get him to recant Christ and was unsuccessful in doing so, but he didn't die, which is just a crazy thing to think about. But there are actual literal moments where Christians have faced the fires because of their faith. And whether you and I ever face a literal fire because of our faith, we will face great trials and tribulations because of our walk with Christ. But when we live surrendered to him, this is our act of worship unto him. Here's this phrase that I wrote down this week as I kind of thought about this truth, is that he died for me so that I could live for him. That's what this idea means, that he died for me so that I could live for him. So simple truth, but this is what this verse is saying. That Christ gave his life to you, so now you give your life unto him. You, all the breath in your lungs, let it be an offering of worship and surrender unto him. So, the main idea of today is worship Jesus through a surrendered life. Why? Because of the grace that he's given us. And what does that mean? It means that every moment of every day, we go, Jesus, I am surrendered unto you. My life is yours. How I talk about people How I spend my, everything is given unto you. So I close with this question. How do you worship Jesus? Is it in a way that he describes and prescribes for us? Because we don't determine how we worship him. He determines how we worship him. And according to this verse, he says that you worship me when you surrender your life unto me. That's why we would say that a mark of a mature Christian as it relates to our relationship with God, is that what? We live surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. That means a mature Christian is one who says, not perfectly, 
but we attempt to every day go, Jesus, my life is yours. And here's the thing about the measures. I could be living surrendered to him today, but not tomorrow. I can have good cholesterol today, but not tomorrow. And when we think about this in our lives, are you living surrendered to him today? And here's the truth on the question, how do you worship Jesus? Anything short of worshiping Jesus through a surrendered life is not fully worship as described in the Bible. Yes, singing songs in church is an aspect of our worship, but true worship is a heart and a life surrendered unto Jesus. We started today's service with this verse, and let me read it again in closing. Psalms 51. King David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice. Now, he's using sacrifice a little bit different than Romans, so don't get confused by that. But he's talking about a literal physical sacrifice. For you will not delight in the sacrifice of an animal, or I would give that. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices are God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. This is one that's fully surrendered unto him, O God. And you will not despise, meaning you will not reject that. I don't know about you, but I want my life to be an act of worship that is accepted by God. And according to Romans 12 and other aspects of Scripture, he makes it clear that we are to worship Jesus through a surrendered life. Would you join me as we pray? Jesus, we want to worship you with, through a surrendered life unto you. That this is the, the measure or mark of maturity that you call us to as it relates to you. That every moment of every day my life is on the altar. And at times, in confession, I get up off that altar and I say, you know what, I want to live for me today. And I thank you that your grace is still upon me even when I do that. But I make the conscious decision right now to say I'll get back up on that altar. My life is yours, Jesus. And Lord, when I wake up in the morning, would you remind me of this truth and would you help me surrender to you tomorrow? That every single day, would you help me go that my life is not mine, but it's been bought with a price and I would surrender my life unto you. Because you are a good king that guides and directs my lives all the days of my life. So Lord, I pray over this room and I pray that that would be true for every heart in this room. That every heart would be bowed and surrender unto you. Because listen to me, salvation and the righteousness of Christ only comes to those who are surrendered unto Jesus, who have believed in him and put their faith in him, meaning they've given their all to him. And so, Lord, I pray that that's true for us. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is newhopenyc. Our website is www newhopeny.org If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.